The following program may contain explicit language. It's Thursday, November 5th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It was the second batch from Maricopa County that almost killed me. Oh, the promised second batch. In just minutes, in just minutes, just a few minutes more. Stretched out past midnight in the east, then one, then two, then almost three. Bleary-eyed, I stayed up. I heard the Trump partisans protesting outside the election center. Wait, stop, stop the vote? No, wait, that wasn't Arizona. That was Michigan. Clearly in Michigan, the Trumpistas are anti-counting the vote. Here is the tape from Arizona. That is count the vote. When asked if they were a peaceful lot, the MSNBC reporter gingerly said, well, they are very well armed. It is legal to bring long guns to a protest. They're peaceful. Sort of like Colt 45 marketed a gun called the Peacemaker. The count in Maricopa County stopped. The threat of armed, let's say, enthusiasts might have played a role. But also, they just like to count things and do all their work at night out there in the desert. Take a lesson from Kokiangwuti, the goddess of Hopi legend. But what did I really learn when the second batch came in? Not much. It was a bad batch. I vowed at the Offerman wedding never to get drunk on the small batch again. But I speak to you from a strange area right now where Joe Biden might be president in your ears and around your ears when you're hearing this, but he hasn't been elected within the area of my mouth right now. Let me report on a phenomenon that's been going on here in the area where it looks like Joe Biden has enough votes to win, but we're not sure. And the phenomenon is that people aren't happy. I don't mean people who didn't vote for Joe Biden. I mean people who did. Remember then, back then, when the biggest threat to our safety, standing, security, and sanity was a guy named Donald Trump? Well, it does seem like that guy's gonna go. So that's good, right? Yeah, but it wasn't a rebuke. It wasn't a landslide. And Mitch McConnell will be still able to get his purple little paws around the throats of our ambition and choke it out. Well, let me, let me ask you, my disappointed fellow, my mopey Eeyore, What were you in this for? Were you in it for the feeling of elation? Is that what politics is for? I mean, that's what Tufts professor Eitan Hirsch says. He wrote a book called Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Hobbyism. Because I think a lot of us really do think of politics as a hobby. I know I do. I try to guard against that inclination. But, you know, I do want you to listen to a show like this. (laughs) And if you didn't think or have politics as a hobby, it would be, I don't know, 45% less useful. You know what? I do ask you to consider this. If you're feeling bad right now, maybe this was more about your feelings than you admitted. So therefore, you're conceding the part of the argument to Ben Shapiro, right? Ben Shapiro is always saying it's not about feelings. It's not about facts. And maybe you heard that answer or that argument before and said to yourself, no, 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 it's not about feelings. Kids in cages aren't feelings. Environmental degradation aren't feelings. Protecting reproductive rights and using the office to enrich yourself. None of those are feelings. Okay, well, now the threats are ebbing and the transgressions are fading from the stage. Cookie and Wooty willing. But why aren't you or maybe me a little bit? A lot of people we know, why aren't we exulting? Maybe it was a little bit about the feelings more than you knew. 
that it wasn't just that Trump was a menace, it's that he was an annoyance. And it wasn't that Trump was always ignoring his duties in favor of owning the libs and we just really wanted him to get to his duties. It was that when he owned the libs, I don't know, we were the libs. And he really did make us feel bad the way he acted so cocksure and certain. And that that didn't feel good. And we wanted him to have a comeuppance, not for the country or the office of the presidency or an agenda that might have been. Maybe it's just because he was cruel and wanted to be cruel and made us feel bad because he was cruel. And now what's going on is that we were being bullied all this time. And then one day you come into school and it turns out the bully moved away. Well, that's not that's not a plot. That's not a narrative. The bully needs to be beaten up, humiliated, or to fall in the mud, or to be hung from the flagpole by his undershorts. That's what we want. But again, I ask, what is politics for? Is it hobbyism? Is it a feeling? Is it a pastime? Hundreds of millions of dollars of cable news revenue knows it's a bit of a pastime. But it shouldn't be, not primarily. Trump in some ways gave us all an easy task when it came to politics. If the binary was pro-Trump or anti-Trump, there's no real choice. But now we have to think a little harder. If you're at all upset or let down, and not just because the very understandably disappointing fact that the Senate will surely be an obstructionary force to a Biden presidency, but if you're feeling less than elation and that surprise that you lack elation might be causing you almost depression, I say look inward and ask, what are politics for? What do you use politics for? It's for power, says Professor Hirsch. It's for policy goals, I say. Maybe you've heard me articulate what I want to get out of politics. I want policies that help the most people and help the people in the most dire need the most. Maybe when you hear this, you will be able to say, we won. Well, Will yourself to feel like a winner then, damn it. The result wasn't the best thing ever to happen to U.S. politics in our lifetimes, but it may just put an end to the worst. On the show today, a reckoning, actually, with the polls and the true feelings of the American people as told through two pollsters from opposite polls. But first, Ben Wittes is the editor-in-chief of Lawfare, I wanted to use his insights, his expertise, to go through the next few months and days. First, what's the possibility of successful court challenges to election results? What should we guard against in terms of extrajudicial leveraging of sentiment towards undemocratic aims? What about the last couple of months on the Trump White House lease? Will we get our security deposit back? And what could be done when there's someone else in the White House to sturdy up the place? Ben Wittes, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, 
via your passions in life, it is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. If you are of a certain sort, the sort who mistakes dependent and independent variables, you might chafe at our next conversation where we won't assume the future, but we will stipulate that we can't affect the future. The vote is the vote. The count is the count. And if you believe in the primacy of the count, then you will allow it to go unfettered while you talk about the reasonable results of the count, which seems to be that Joe Biden will be our next president. Again, I'll say, sorry if you think we're jinxing it, but part of our conversation might be an affirmation of stop being so superstitious and just believe in the count. So what I want to talk about are some of the implications of a post-Trump presidency or even the post-election portion of our norm-shattering president. And so we are joined by our norm-affirming expert, Benjamin Wittes. He is the impresario behind not only Lawfare, but the co-author of the book, Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. Ben Wittes, thanks for joining me again, and happy birthday. Thank you. Although I got to say, norm shattering is so much Mm -hmm. cooler sounding than norm affirming. Um, Yes. You know, like... I feel like it's like such a like a dad thing to be a norm affirmer. It's like way more metal to be a norm shatterer. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say norm shattering is so much cooler than Norm Ornstein. But, you know, Norm Ornstein's pretty damn cool. I actually like Norm Ornstein quite a lot. And I, if I were going to make a, a, a snide joke about him, I certainly would do it in private. No, and I'm pro... I'm pro-norm in all senses, but I just like the word shatter better than the word affirm. So before we even get there, um, since you talked about this on the Lawfare podcast with some experts, just in terms of legal cases, hey, I noticed once that Lawfare rhymes with warfare and they say politics is war by other means. Do any of the cases that Trump and the Trump campaign is bringing, do any of them seem to have any chance or merit from what you and your experts are seeing? I think not. Um, So first of all, uh, these are lawsuits that are asking courts to intervene to prevent the counting of legally cast votes. That is a a trivially stupid request, and it will not prevail, I don't think, in any court. But, you know, to the extent that they are trying to make spaghetti stick to a wall here, you know, the spaghetti that they're trying to get to stick to a wall is pretty rotten. It's not like, you know, the Bush v. Gore controversy where you had counted the votes and you were trying to figure out whether there had been an undercount, right? Here, they're actually asking people, not asking courts to prevent the counting of votes that were cast under the rules of the state. They are not going to prevail on that. Yeah, I'm going to help you with the analogy. This is not correcting. This is uh, yes-anding. So I think rotten spaghetti would stick more, but undercooked spaghetti, that just bounced right off the wall. Or even raw spaghetti. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's right. Their case is undercooked to the point of being raw. I like yeah, but you got to get do. some tomato sauce in there because like, otherwise, you know, if you throw spaghetti, r- raw spaghetti at the wall and it just bounces off, that's kind of weird, but it's not gross. Right. So if the spaghetti is the legal case, the tomato sauce is all the, I guess, arguing in the public square that might have some effect, although I'm not sure it ha- 
it will. Two-part question. Is the sort of misinformation that Trump and his minions have been engaged in, is that being effectively rebutted by gatekeepers? And even if some or much is sneaking through, do you see any way that that would actually affect the outcome? Yeah, that's a, so th- this is where the stuff is dangerous, right? It is not that it's likely to actually be adopted by a court. But the thing is, the president doesn't think like a lawyer. He thinks like a cult leader. And this is a way of putting out in the public sphere the idea that the election is illegitimate and was stolen. That is not going to catch on in a legal sense. It will not prevent assuming the results continue to swing Joe Biden's way. It will not prevent Joe Biden from becoming president, but it will create a kind of stab in the back myth among a large number of people who will believe at some level in a conspiratorial kind of way that the election was stolen. And that's preventing exactly that is the reason why we normally expect presidents and or losing candidates to make a gracious phone call and a concession speech, right, to precisely to avoid that. And if you do the opposite of that over a long period of time, you do develop subcultures, which in this case could be a very large subculture that believes crazy things. And that's, you know, toxic in a democratic society. So the answer, if, if the question is, you know, what should we do and how seriously should we take his words or his tweets or the words he and his minions approve as seriously as can be, there's no downside to that. But what I'm really worrying or wondering about is that oftentimes he says things and, you know, dangerous inflammatory things, but he doesn't really want to set the fire. He just wants to either give the impression that, you know, he has a torch or he wants to uh, vent maybe, you know, we're all human, even him let's go to lock her up. There was plenty of evidence that he didn't really want to lock her up or he never considered actually bringing criminal charges against Hillary Clinton, but just the sentiment out there served his purposes, either electoral purposes, psychological purposes, or others in the moment. To go back to the uh, premise of my question, I guess we have to act either way as if he is serious, but what about that? Is there a chance and does it change our strategy if a lot of the things that he is saying and tweeting, um, we really... are really just in the category of he's being splenetic and he's venting, but they're just words. I think you have to answer that question if you're, you know, at two different levels, right? One is how do you respond to it tactically if you are any of the following actors, the Joe Biden campaign, the media, people like me who you know, do analysis in various public formats, right? And by the way, I think the answer to the first question is relatively easy. And it is, you refuse to publish stuff you know to be untrue. The longer term question is much harder, which is for the short term problem, you can rely on a certain automaticity to the process. When there are votes cast in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania officials don't ask the president's permission to count them, right? They have rules under which they count them and they just kind of do it. And then the result gets announced and the president doesn't really get a choice about that either. And then they get certified and electors get appointed and the president doesn't really get a choice about that. So he can throw a lot of smoke in the air, 
but actually the nervous nightmares of a lot of centrists and liberals aside, there isn't actually that much he can do to stop Joe Biden from becoming president. The longer term problem, however, is much harder. The longer term problem is if you erode the principle that when you lose, you lose and you acknowledge that you lost and you organize a good transition so that governance can be continuous and you don't undermine the legitimacy of your successor because he or she has to actually govern and governing is really hard. If you really undermine that and you replace it with a lot of conspiratorial thinking and you stoke that stuff, you know, people are going to get killed. People are going to get hurt. The country is going to be harder to govern and you're going to increase political polarization. And all of those things are bad. And those things are much harder to combat because they rely on a certain measure of decency, you know, to not happen. And that's the decency that Trump doesn't show, which is to say any measure of decency. What do we think of the, what's the assessment of the interregnum between election defeat and actually leaving office? I think there's like three categories of problem or, you know, maybe four, two of which we've already talked about. So the two we've talked about are actually contesting the election and doing a whole lot of delegitimizing whining about it. The third is abusive uses of the powers of the presidency in the intervening period. The powers of the presidency do not ebb as you head toward departure. And that means you have the power to issue a whole lot of, uh, for example, vindictive pardons, including theoretically, I suppose, pardoning yourself, right? You have the power to fire a whole lot of people. You could imagine a whole lot of personnel uh, retribution, kind of retributive kind of actions that would be disruptive. And of course, the president recently issued an executive order designed to, uh, you know, facilitate that sort of thing if he chose to go that route. There is also the sort of regular late policy making. A lot of presidencies finish up with a, a flurry of rulemakings of one sort or another um, that are possible for the next administration to undo, but do require that they be undone. And I, I do think you'll probably see a fair bit of that. Finally, there's Trump being Trump, right? Can you say stuff, do stuff that just by saying it and announcing it, you destabilize certain things. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility either of some trade actions designed to upset the apple cart with certain disfavored allies, or I think more dangerously, uh, foreign actors assessing that uh, this is a good time to, with the U.S., deeply distracted, it's a good time to make mischief in their particular parts of the world. Um, Look particularly at, you know, the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits for that sort of thing. Uh, The final area, which I just think is, and this I think is an absolute certainty that it will happen, 
is uh, that Trump will run a bad transition. And, you know, this, you get into nerd land real fast, but here, but presidential transitions are very hard and they rely on a lot of good faith by presidents, often with respect to their political opponents, to behave like patriots. And, you know, the, the really moving story here is about George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Obama was so moved by Bush's, the transition that Bush organized for him and how professional and seamless it was that he, he's talked about it publicly. And when Trump won, Obama ordered his cabinet. He said, this was a great gift that Bush had given me and I want to give it to my successor. And he ordered them all to provide a picture-perfect transition and really good transition materials and briefings. And of course, as Michael Lewis documented in The Fifth Risk, those materials were never read. The briefings never happened. I think the likelihood that Trump will organize a good transition for Joe Biden is nearly zero. And that means that the new administration will come in with less good information, less prepared, uh, and less governance capacity on day one than you know you would want. So we've talked ourselves up to or maybe into January 20th. And then there is the massive project. I mean, you wrote your book on making the presidency. What about remaking the presidency? Some will just be by dint of the occupant, it will be remade. Some might have to be, some will be remade by appointment. There is the question about uh, the legal ramifications going after Trump's misdeeds legally. There's a robust debate about that. I want to ask you about constitutional amendments. They're exceedingly difficult, but my idea is just a very simple one. Some constitutional amendments, uh, you know, giving 18-year-olds a right to vote. I think that's less than 50 words, including the words section one and section two. Some constitutional amendments can be very terse and very targeted. And what about a constitutional amendment just saying and clarifying the president cannot pardon himself or herself? And this, the, the project, just the very nature of getting together and passing the constitutional amendment might say something about the Trump administration and also have the benefit of clarifying uh, the law. What do you think of that? So I would certainly uh, support such an amendment. I think it's a very heavy lift for a problem that really has arisen exactly once in American history. And so I, I guess I might feel differently about it if Trump tries to do it, like the urgency of it, if Trump tries to do it, than if um, he doesn't try to do it and it remains a sort of theoretical problem. But I, I guess I feel like the energy that we have for pro-democracy reforms in the wake of Trump, which are going to be now difficult because of the composition of the Senate, we have to be very careful about how we prioritize them. And there are a number of things that are higher on my agenda than that one. I would like to see certain clarifications to the criminal law about what does and doesn't constitute obstruction of justice by the President of the United States. I would like to see clarifications of the application of the emoluments clause to the presidency. We should have a serious conversation. Should the president be running a business on the side? These are questions that I think are, 
really, really important. And before we have another presidency organized by somebody who has a business empire on the side, I do think that's something that Congress should speak about. What do you think the appetite for these sort of projects will be after the fact? Will we be like homeowners whose uh, back deck was wrecked by the hurricane and maybe we always wanted a swing set anyway? Or will we be diligent about our responsibility to rebuild? Well, I hope we will be diligent. And this is where I actually think the fact that, you know, Joe Biden is a longtime member of the Senate uh, who actually has relationships there, including with Republicans, you know, now that these types of reforms are not necessarily seen as attacks on an incumbent president whom Republicans have to defend. I would hope there would be some some ability to have cross-partisan conversations on this subject that have not been available for the last few years. I think it would be an easier lift if the president and the Senate were of the same party and you could be more ambitious in, in your thinking about it. But I would hope that I would hope that the takeaway from many Republican senators of this period is not, oh, what we need more of is the transgression of these norms. And that now that they're not in a position where they have to defend it every day because it's the president of their party and they can treat it as what would we want in the future, that there is room for policymaking that says, all right, we're not going to talk about Donald Trump, but we are going to say, hey, don't do this stuff again. People in the future don't do this. Benjamin Wittes is co-author of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. He is a senior fellow in governance study at the Brookings Institution. He is a birthday boy and he is the editor-in-chief of Lawfare. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you and happy Guy Fox Day to everybody. <laughs> Deflecting. Always the birthday deflection. And now the spiel. In 2008, Nate Silver got 49 of 50 states right and was within a percentage point of the national presidential vote tally. In 2012, Nate Silver got every state right in the election. A meme was born asking, is Nate Silver a witch? A website with that exact URL was birthed, and Silver was asked about that in a 2012 interview in Chicago Magazine. Quote, you've been characterized as a wizard or a witch. What's your reaction? Silver's answer, I'm trying to maintain some form of detachment from it, almost like it's happening to another person or another character, but it's weird. And it goes to show you what can happen in the internet age when things really take off really fast. Yes, yes, they do take off. Trends emerge quickly. Success stories are born. And then, from what I've observed of this internet age, things can turn ugly rather quickly. Now Nate and the pollsters, of which he isn't, and the aggregators and forecasters, of which he is, are taking it on the chin. Nate hate is rampant. I checked on the website. Is Nate Silver a witch? It's a sex site now. And the hate's most rampant among people who want Nate to be wrong. People like Sean Hannity, who went out and found his own Nate 
Trafalgar pollster Robert Cahaley. The fake news media mob completely missing the mark. I mean, this is pathetic. You can't get any worse. Florida, Ohio, you name it, all across the country. But there was some two guys that got it right. And one, oh, they both got it right in 2016. And he's from the Trafalgar Group and their chief pollster, Robert Cahaley, and the architect, Carl Rowe. You know, I noticed that guy, Nate Silver, doesn't like you. Well, he was the architect of the president who got us into two unwinnable wars and who failed to do anything to rein in a housing bubble that wrecked the economy. Oh, Hannity was talking about Robert Cahaley, not Karl Rove. I don't know if Nate doesn't like Cahaley. Actually, I think he doesn't like Cahaley. But Cahaley has been on this program and he's pretty focused on Nate. He referenced Nate. He challenged him to a bet. It's not just Hannity. Many fair-minded people think that Nate did a really bad job with his forecast this year, not just him, all the pollsters. I wanted to look and see what the evidence shows. Well, Cahaley predicted Trump would win. I don't think he's going to. He might. Nate Silver said there was an 89% chance Biden would win. Right now, it's probably a little more than an 89% chance. Who knows? Let's call that one undecided. Though by the time you hear that, you may decide. On to individual states. Some Cahaley's calls were more accurate than Nate Silver's. But not just Nate Silver. All the pollsters, all the pollsters got it wrong. So the actual vote is still being tallied in a lot of places. But I think the pollster's biggest whiff was Wisconsin. Nate Silver's biggest whiff was Wisconsin. He said Biden would win 53.7% to 45.4%. He gave a range, but that was the middle of the range. In fact, Biden won by just a little bit, 0.6%. Guess what? Cahaley said 0.4%. All right, credit to Cahaley. But since everyone was looking at Wisconsin for a long time, and since Wisconsin seemed really important, the correct call seemed really impressive. So that credit was accrued to Cahaley. But beyond that, he did get Florida right, did Cahaley. He did get Ohio right. 538 said Ohio would be very, very close, less than a point. No, it wasn't. Trump won by eight. Cahaley had it at 4.8. But check out some other states. It's too early to know the result in Pennsylvania as I speak. It was really close. The real clear politics average of all the polls out there said it would be a 1.2% win from Biden. That seems to be pretty close to what will actually happen. Don't use Pennsylvania and the pollsters average as an example of the pollsters getting it wrong. Nate said Biden would win by 4.7%. Don't think it'll get up to that. But Cahaley said Trump would win by two. If it's a one-point Biden win, Cahaley will be closer numerically, but wrong directionally. Let's look at Minnesota. Actual margin of victory, Biden by 7.1. 538 said Biden would win by 8.9. Trafalgar said Biden would win only by three. 538 and Nate are closer. In Michigan, Trafalgar said Trump would win by two, two and a half actually. Silver said Biden would win. Biden has one. And in two states that are close and not called, Nevada, Nate predicted a Biden win. Trafalgar said Trump. Georgia, Nate predicted a Biden victory. Trafalgar said Trump. In fact, Trafalgar and Cahaley dismissed Biden's chances in Georgia with this phrase when speaking with me. Anybody talking about Georgia and Texas, they need drug rehab. That ain't going to happen. That's not the kind of analysis that should get anyone to appoint you the new witch. Not even Sean Hannity, not even Fox News' so-called street news host, Brett Baer. And let me just say that I'll give another shout out, and I did early this morning, to the Trafalgar Group, yeah, because they 
really yeah. nailed a lot of these states with their polling. They were called wackos and way out there. And the mainstream media overall called them outliers who had no scientific basis. And yet they were the closest. Pending results in key states, it could very, very well turn out that Trafalgar was wrong in Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada. And of course, the winner of the election in general. Nate Silver got anointed, and exaggeratedly so, for getting 49 states right one election and every single state right the next. The newly appointed Nate Silver missed more close states than he got right. Is that what it takes to rake in the kudos from right-wing media being fairly wrong, but in the direction they like, and in a way that points out that your big rival is sometimes more wrong than you are if you look at select cases? Yes, yes, in fact, that is what it takes to get the kudos. Here's what I think. I think Robert Cahaley has a correct insight that there is some underreporting or underpolling of pro-Republican and especially pro-Trump sentiment for whatever reason. He then may have done some scientific polling, or he may have put a thumb on the scale and called that science. But he did get results in many cases that were closer to the actual results. And he definitely understood how to position himself in the media. And it's also true that Nate Silver's methods may have been perfectly attuned to a time, 2008, 2012, when people weren't at all reluctant to tell you that they supported the president. So maybe he had a certain genius that worked best during a certain period and works less well now. Maybe Robert Cahaley is chasing the zeitgeist with figures and asking that we call it genius. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Margaret Kelly, who is worried about cured votes, and Daniel Schrader, who is worried about brined and pickled votes. Leach Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. There is no batch so small from Maricopa County that Alicia will not monitor it. Umpro Depro Dupro, and thanks for listening.